Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jarrell Mason, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a man, if you know radio, especially in New York and Philadelphia, you know his name, you know his voice, Power 99, Power 105, Backstory, with the namesake himself, and he's also VP of Programming at Urban One. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big round of applause for Mr. Colby Cope. Welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, sir. What's up, man? Thank you for having me on here today. It was a gracious in, in, uh, introduction there. What's going on? Not much. I appreciate you taking the time out to do this interview. So without further delay, let's go ahead and jump right into it. Let's talk about life growing up in Philadelphia and what led you to get into this crazy business known as radio. Um, you know, just uh, in, in my era of, of growing up, there was just wasn't a lot of resources that you have today, meaning the Internet, you know, you know, didn't have a lot of television to watch. So, you know, radio, uh, especially in the black community, radio was something that, you know, everybody listened to the radio, had a connection because music is universal and music really drives us and, and um, energizes us and gives us. Um, just that, that great feeling that you get from music. So I listened to the radio and I just um, stayed a lot of time, spent a lot of time in my room and stayed out of trouble and just started to envision, you know, this would be something really cool to do. Didn't know how to do it, but, you know, I was just sort of that kid that was connected to it. Then I would call radio stations and speak to the DJs. And, and that was really the first, the beginning of me really recognizing this is something I want to do. And then when I was 15, uh, one of the DJs invited me down to the radio station and I walked in and I was just like, this is amazing. Like, I got to do this. This is what I want to do for a living. And then as I got out of high school and went to college, I really started to pursue um, opportunities um, in, in media and radio. And, you know, the rest is history. Now, who are some of your influences in Philly radio that inspired you to get into the game? Um, well, listening probably was, uh, Lady B cause she, I was also a hip hop head. And so Lady B was someone who like was sort of like the queen of, of, uh, hip hop in Philadelphia radio. So me and her, you know, there was, there was a connection there, you know, listening to her. Um, you know, there was just, there's so many different folks. Like, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to name them all, but it's like a lot of folks that some people may know a lot of people that, that may not know. But ultimately, um, I listen to all kind of radio. So I was just like connecting with, with people all the time. Hold, hold on one second, man. Hold on. So there was just various. So there was various DJs that I would um, connect with. And, and um, you know, uh, the main one that really sort of gave me an opportunity was Fred Bugs, who would, at the time was on in Philadelphia. And then. He went to New York and my parents were divorced. So I would, you know, spend my my weekdays in Philadelphia and then my weekends in New York because my dad lives in New York. And um I called him on the radio station and that was like the first time I got invited to a station. He was working at the biggest urban station in America at the time, which was Kiss FM. And I went down to the station. So Fred Bugs, you know, is somebody that, you know, who's still in the game, he's on BLS today, is somebody that I, you know that really mentored me early on and just kind of showed me the ropes. Um, the, uh, Jojo Davis, who was sort of my mentor in radio um, at the time when I got to Power 99, he was doing nights and he really took me under his wing and really kind of taught me a lot. Mike Love is another one. 
Uh, Mike Love actually, um, who is a consultant in radio still to this day, actually gave me my name. I mean, it was, you know, he was the one that just, it just came out of his mouth like Kobe Cole. And that was kind of like the beginning of me. And I was 17 years old. So it was like, that was it. That was the name. And he gave it to me. So those are some of the people, um, you know, Patty Jackson is someone I, I we worked together at the time and she's just a phenomenal talent today. Um, you know, other folks, uh, you know, the late E. Stephen Collins, um, you know, Butterball, you know, all of these great icons of people that I listen to in Philadelphia. And, and then and then even Tony Brown, God rest his soul, he died um, uh, in the last year, uh, who was sort of, you know, was an icon of Philadelphia radio. I ended up working with him and, you know, we just became friends. You know, he invited me to his wedding. He didn't invite that many people to his wedding, but I was at his wedding. So just, just, just people like that that I listened to growing up and then end up working with and then, um, you know, learning some things from. And um, the one thing that I missed about broadcasting back during those days was that there was originality based on whatever market you were in. Philly was different from New York, different from Columbia, South Carolina, or Atlanta, Georgia. And you mentioned Lady B earlier and uh, her influential show Street Beat and uh, Questlove on Questlove Supreme just recently had her on, which was a treat because she rarely gives interviews. So can we talk about the importance of that show, what it meant to Power 99 and how they were taking what Magic and Red Alert was doing in New York and added their Philly flavor to it? Yeah, well, you know, the, the cool thing about Lady B was like at the time when she was doing Street Beat and I was coming back and forth to New York, so I got a chance to listen to, you know, uh, Magic and Molly, who were just killing it on BLS and then eventually Red Alert and Chuck Chillout, who were doing it on Kiss FM in New York. Um, but but what Lady B was was different because, you know, she was on an AM station, WHAT. And I, I'll never forget that because on WHAT, um, it was hard to get the station, you know, it was an AM station. And like, but she, man, she would have this, she would have that thing rocking and then you know that the first major pre-agency move that i recognized in radio was her leaving that am station and going to power 99 and working on the afternoon show i mean afternoon on sunday afternoons taking street beats to sunday afternoons and that just exploded i mean that show just exploded and so she's really someone who um is iconic in a sense she was groundbreaking in radio and in hip-hop but she was also a woman doing it um, and, you know, we still work together to this day. Like, you know, like I, I brought her to Philadelphia, um, you know, two times. So, you know, uh, brought her back on the radio in Philadelphia two times and someone who I admire and, um, you know, she should definitely get her flowers and, um, you know, Quest Love was interesting growing up in Philadelphia, you know, Quest Love was a little bit younger than me. Um, but he would listen to my show when I, cause when Lady B went off the air, um, that's how I ended up getting my show Radioactive because there was no hip hop show for two years in Philadelphia. And I went to my boss and I was 21 at the time and I was just in a real weird spot. My brother had just died and I pitched this idea for a hip hop show and, and he gave it to me and I did this hip hop show. And, um, you know, Quest Love was a caller that used to call in on the Friday nights. He would call in, we would just talk about music. And then eventually he became an artist and then he was a guest on the show. Um, so I think I always think it's full circle when you think about all these um, interactions that you have with people and, and the way that things kind of work out. Um, but yeah, Lady B was is is still to this day iconic. Yeah. And this is back in the days, people, when 
rap and hip hop was not getting mainstream play on the certain day parts in radio where they would only put it late night or early mornings where it wouldn't affect the ratings. But once they saw the money maker and then the demos that would buy, then we got to put this in between Freddie Jackson, Anita Baker, Luther Vandross, and try to get that young demographic in while appeasing our older demo, who got the money. Yep. I mean, it's just a, the, it's just a marketing. You, you put something on a little risque, um, cool, and you bring a lot of people in. And then once you get the people in, then unfortunately, a lot of times it changes. I mean, you can look at Fox, um, the network TV network Fox was built on black shows and they had living color. They had all these different shows, you know, and then next thing you know, they got the NFL, and then all of a sudden they got rid of all of the black shows and they had like married with children and the Simpsons and all these other shit. Like they just kind of pushed all that stuff out, but they used the black audience to build up um, the, the state, the network, right. It happens all the time. And hip hop is, is sort of that energy that it just brings a lot of energy. Like whenever you do something with hip hop, it just brings energy historically. And it definitely um, connects with younger people. And then that just builds awareness and audience. Or when they say radio, you know, cue people like checking in, you know, and, and you build off of that. Yeah, for sure. And you went to Temple University. Now, did you have any sightings of the late coach John Chaney? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I went to Temple, uh, the basketball team was very good. Um, uh, most of the years that I was there, the basketball team was good. And John Chaney was, you know, he walked around campus and, um, you know, just, uh, you know, he had a really tough programming, I mean, program and what he liked to do, um, which, which everybody recognized was, you know, all the players had to, had to come in for like 5 a.m. practices or whatever before their classes started, which was like crazy. Um, but yeah, I, I remember the era. That was a great era. In fact, in um, my sophomore year, we were the number one team in the country and then we eventually lost to Duke in the Elite Eight and, um you know, uh, Billy King, who was an NBA uh, executive, or not no more, but was an NBA executive, was a college player on that team. And he was a friend of mine when, when I was living in Philly. And then, and then we used to go at it all the time because I always tease him about that game, uh, Duke Temple game, and how um, they broke our hearts that year when we were number one. Yeah, I hate Duke too. I'm a Tar Heel fan, so need I say more so Philadelphia we all know the history of Philly Soul, Philly International, Sigma Sounds, Gamble, Huff, Don Bell, Linda Creed, Hall and Oates, LaBelle, the list goes on and on but Philly in terms of a market for hip-hop was just as important as New York because a lot of New York acts would come down to Philly and really cut their teeth mm -hmm. and then you know all of the early Philly rap acts like Schooly D then Jazzy Jeff, Cash Mutt, DJ Cash Money, Fresh Prince, Three Times Dope, Legendary Record Label Pop Art. So can we talk about the influence of Philly hip hop on hip hop culture? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, basically the, the birthplace of hip hop is New York City. And it's really, if you think about it, it's sort of like a bomb and, and it, it just kind of exploded. So it started in the Bronx. And then it quickly spread to all the boroughs. Then it was Jersey. Then it was Connecticut. And the next major city to embrace hip hop was Philadelphia. Um, and and then Hartford in the, to the north. But Philly was sort of the bigger market that um, artists would come down to. And then they would, if you were blowing up in New York, you were pretty much doing well in Philadelphia. And then <clears throat> Philadelphia 
had a bit of a chip on his shoulder about that because, um, you know, it was all about New York. And New York was the birthplace of hip-hop. So, it was, you know, organically, that's what was happening. And so um, <clears throat> Philly wanted his own, you know, lane. You know, they it wanted its own, you know, moment. So there were just like a bunch of great artists that started to be developed out of Philly. There's an artist named, um, his real name is Joey B. Ellis. And um, why can't I remember? I know who you're talking name. about. Discombob Discombobulator Boobulator. Yeah, Discombobulator Boobulator was the song. But he had another song. I believe it was uh, It was like, it ain't New York, but Philly is stepping in. Or I mean, that could have been another Philly song. I just can't remember it. But the point is, like, he was somebody that had a song and they put it on the radio. And all of a sudden, he was a big guy in Philly. And then you had Schooly D, who was like really the first gangster rapper ever, who was from 52nd and Parkside. And if you're from Philly, you already know that that was a rough area of the city. And this guy was like, you know, rapping about gangster stuff before NWA and all that. And then you have, you know, <clears throat> the Hilltop Hustlers, Cool C, Steady B. Um, and they were from, you know, 60th and Landstine Avenue, which was more like a working middle class um, neighborhood outside of West Philly. And then Winfield is like right next to it, which is a little bit more upper middle class. And that's where Will Smith came from. And then, you know, Jazzy Jeff was from Southwest Philly. And you just kind of had this really big group of artists kind of com coming together. And so when big shows would come to Philly, these artists would be opening up for them. And then you would have the growth of Steady B, then Cool C, getting their major deals and touring all over the country. And um all of the other artists that you know that were developed three times dope that was just uh, it was a really good moment in hip-hop and then you even just fast forward to where we are now there's a great crew of rappers coming out of philly um and meek mill was sort of like a real big star that came out of philadelphia that was able to really um you know take that next step with that superstardom step that previous generations of rappers were able to do so no philly has been a great place a great resource for hip-hop um you know beanie siegel was another one that literally this guy was just like you know thugging it out in the streets and rapping on the corners and he flipped that um into a deal with jay-z because of another hustler partner uh, another hustler <clears throat> got into jay-z circle and kind of opened up jay-z to him and i remember that because i remember just the rawness of of beanie and and um the first time you heard him on a major record was um, that record uh, Reservoir Dogs on Jay-Z's biggest album still to this day, the the uh, volume, I think it was the Hard Knock Life album, whatever that album is called. But the point is, Beanie was sort of, sort of impactful and that was his entry into the business. And then you had the young, um, the, the uh, state property crew, all of those guys, you know, Chris and Neef, um, PD Crack, all of these guys, man, I, we, we just had such a movement. It's such an energy in Philly. And Philly is, you know, one thing about Philly that I always tell people, I mean, I don't live in Philly anymore. I live in the D.C. area now and I've lived all, all over the country. But what I tell people about Philadelphia is like Philly really appreciates you when, you know, being authentic. And, they, and when you're not authentic, they'll let you know that you're not authentic and call you out. Right. So like if you get respect and get that in Philly. You can get respect and get deaf anywhere and around the world. And I noticed that just living in other places that it's much easier to live in other places. It's not as easy to live in Philadelphia, but I like that. I like that Philly is unique. And, and, you know, like right now, Philly, um, 
they're going through the whole thing with Ben Simmons and before that it was Carson Wentz who played for the Eagles. Like a lot of those dudes is just not mentally prepared to come into Philly and people expect you to roll up your sleeves and get to work. You know, if you want to party and have fun, that's good. AI, but he put in the work, right? And they respected that. That's why that dude can never do no wrong in Philadelphia. Um, and, and that's a, that's a great ethic. And the same thing that happens for the, for the MCs and the art, artists that come out of Philly. I mean, I think Black Thought is one of the greatest MCs that ever existed in hip hop. And he is from Philadelphia. Um, I think today's his 50th birthday. He's just a great, you know, human being, but also just his story and his um, unsung. He's just unsung. Like people don't give him the props they need to give him. But that brother is an amazing MC. And uh, and of course, one of the things that was out of Philadelphia that was unique was um, everybody was like the battle thing was real in Philly. Like I mean, they were battling everywhere, but in Philly it was real, right? And you had so many great MCs that rose out of that battle culture in uh, Philadelphia. Right, and I believe Joey B. Ellis's rap name was MC Breeze, I believe. MC Breeze, that's it. Who, by the way, if you see Rocky Four, which was, uh, he had the theme song under the name Joey B. Ellis, it was called Go For It. So like he had stopped being MC Breeze by the time that movie, he had actually disappeared for years. And then he resurfaced when that Rocky Five Four movie came out. Um, and, uh, you know, and he, and he was on that soundtrack and the song, you know, was kind of global that was a part of the movie. Yeah, that was a hot record. Hammer had a cameo in the video because I believe he was signed yep. to Bust It at that time, which was Hammer's yep. record label. That's true. That is correct. But now, speaking of Philly hip-hop, this one name has been brought up in Philly hip-hop. Can we talk about the importance of Charlie Mack? Yeah, I mean, Charlie Mack is, uh, he's the unofficial mayor of the city. He is someone who it's like um, he's the Forrest Gump of hip hop. Like, even though he's from Philly, like there's so many big moments in history and Charlie Mack was there, you know, like he was just a part of it or he was in the background. Um, it's somebody who I've known basically all of my life. Um, that's my Sagittarius brother. And I got a million Charlie Mack stories, but he is just one person that, um, Charlie Mack never needs a backstage pass. Wherever he goes, he never has a pass on. He can he can maneuver through circles, and you know he gets uh, respect and appreciation um, all over the world. And you know, but the one thing that's important to him is Philly, and he always represents Philly wherever he goes. And um, you know, I just saw Stephen A. Smith was talking about the Sixers on first take uh, last week, and he mentioned Charlie Mack because that's what you do, right? Because Charlie is Philadelphia, and if you want to know something about the city, you go to Charlie Mack. He'll make it happen or he'll make the connection for you. Right. And, you know, Stephen Nay, for those of you that don't know, before he went to ESPN, he was a writer in Philly for the Philly yeah. Enquirer, correct? Yeah, for almost 20 years. Yeah, I remember Steve, we, we were all around the AI era. So it was interesting to see. <clears throat> it's interesting to see just remembering that time in Philly history. And then seeing how all these people went on to do great things. I mean, you see even Kevin Hart. Like, I mean, it just there's so many people like that, that that were hustling, trying to figure out, trying to carve out a lane for themselves. And then, you know, they ended up, you know, you know, having tremendous success. And, um, you know, that that definitely, um, you know, for sure, that was that's one of them right there. And I'm curious to know, do you know how Powerhouse came to be? And is this the Powerhouse where Boyz II Men snuck backstage and sang for Michael Bivens? Yep. I was there. It's, uh, I, I just, 
I always had that conversation with Michael Bivens. We laugh about it because Michael Bivens has been a friend of mine for, you know, 30 something years. And um, uh, Powerhouse was originally, originally a, um, when it was the first one came about, um, <clears throat> I want to say somewhere in the 80s, maybe, maybe like, maybe 88, 87, 88 was when the first one that was done. <clears throat> and all the years that I worked there, I, you know, I was a part of all of them. But initially, it was a free concert at the Civic Center, which is used to be the, the Philadelphia Civic Center used to be on, on uh, down around the University of Penn Children's Hospital, like right across from the Children's Hospital. Now, University of Penn took all that up and built it all up and the other stuff. But so we would do the concert there. And I remember us creating it. And then it was more of like an R&B. It was more, I mean, hip hop, you would have a couple of rap groups, but it was all about the R&B stars at the time. And so you would have a who's who and R&B would do the show. And the only way to get tickets was to listen to the radio station and tickets were free. It then <clears throat> morphed into the, uh, the uh, Wells Fargo Center, whatever it was called at the time. It had a different name, but it, it grew into that uh, venue. And I know in 2000, right before I left um, in 2001, for the new millennium 2000, we did a double show back-to-back, um, -back, two nights back-to-back -back at the Wells Fargo Center with two different lineups. Um, and so that concert has always been a major force in, um, in hip-hop uh, historically. And I was there at the beginning when we started it and we built it into a monster when uh, I, I thought that one of the better ones was uh, 98 when we had Jay-Z and um, DMX who were both like big albums at the time both real rock stars we got them for free to do the show and that was just like one of the best shows um, ever you know I mean it was just a iconic show and if you want to think about like from Usher to Busta Rhymes to Monica I mean it's a who's who in the music business stepped on that stage at one point or another um, I mean even going back to Aaliyah, Aaliyah did one of the early powerhouses in the early 90s. And there's actually, I have a picture from that night um, with me um, and another woman who was a major executive in the music business now and Aliyah, right? So it was like, just to show you like, you know, who graced that stage. And then New Edition um, did, the, did the show one year and, uh, you know, and Boys and Men, that's a true story. Um, Boys and Men snuck backstage and one, got one used one pass to get everybody backstage. And it's interesting when they tell that story because it's like, yeah, I was there. And then I was the first person, me and Stanley T were the first people to play their music on the radio. We were a part, an early part of their career. Um, Michael Bivens um, would be coming, come to Philly all the time. And at the time, BBD was like the biggest group ever. And then his first, so his first group on his label, Biv 10 was ABC and they had a huge uh, project. And then Boys the Men, who then was just like out of here. Um, and I actually had a, I have a, ca a cameo in the Motown Philly video and, you know, spent a lot of time with those guys who go over their house, you know, and hang out and, you know, they bought big mansions and they all had cars and it was nice to like know them and see them and watch them grow um, into the stars that they, uh, they, it's just interesting to watch it. Cause again, they were, I just remember when they first started and they just like, they didn't have anything and they were just literally some kids in school who, um, uh, or just getting out of school. In fact, Wanye was still in high school, and I, I was—I think I was on a—I was on a, uh, a call uh, last year, a um, clubhouse call last year, 
and I was on a panel with uh, uh, Nate, uh, not Nate, um, uh, Slim. Oh, what's his name? Sean. Uh, Sean. Sean Stockman. And we, I was telling the people about Sean. We were talking about Boys Men. And I said, I said, just imagine, like it's 1991, and BBD is the biggest artist in the country. I mean, Poison, like Do Me, they were just like huge, right? And then you got ABC, who had the biggest song, Aisha, and this other song. And then you're in the performing arts high school in Philadelphia. And they come outside of your school to film a video. And so if you look at the end of the Motown Philly video, they go boys to men, um, BBD, ABC, BBD, whatever they do. And then you'll see like them, it'll be boys to men, BBD, and ABC. And that picture and that moment was outside of a high school. And so it was like thousands of screaming kids from high school and they had to do it there because Wanye was still in school. So like they kind of just like finagled it to record the video. You can never do any of this stuff today like because of social media, you wouldn't be able to get away with it. But I thought it was really a cool historic moment. And I'm just glad that video exists because I can always go back to that video and tell you the story based on the Motown Philly video. Yeah, but the crazy thing about Boys to Men to me is um, Mark Nelson, who later went on to be in As Yet, was originally yep. in Boys to Men and then left to do, put out a solo album before yep. linking up with As Yet. And then they did backing vocals for an R&B singer by the name of Robbie Michaels, had a record called One Mile from Paradise. And their original name was Unique Attraction before they settled on mm -hmm. Boys to Men. Yeah. And, and also at that school at the time, you had Quest Love. Who was in the, if you look at the Motown Philly video, a much skinnier Quest Love without an afro. He had braids on. In fact, he was in front of me playing the drums. He was actually in two scenes playing the drums, but he was their classmate. Um, was Amil LaRue? Amil LaRue from Amil LaRue was there at the time. Um, and there was just a lot of other cool, interesting people that, you know, I mean, the roots. I mean, it was just like, like a cool crew of people that were in that school at that time who would go on to do bigger and better things. Right. And speaking of The Roots, what was it like for you the first time you heard The Roots? And did you think that they were going to be accepted here in the States, given that their style and sound at the time was very left field of what was being played on the radio? Well, The Roots were different. And so and it was Square Roots. That was the name of the group, the first name of the group. And I remember because they gave me their CD. And again, remember, I knew Quest because he was calling up to the station and um, I learned that he was a fan of my show because a girl that I went to college with, her girlfriend worked at the Benetton store and her girlfriend was Questlove's sister. And it's funny, I ran in, I had a big party for my podcast like three years ago in Philly and Questlove's sister showed up to the party and I told her that story and she started laughing because the Benetton store, you know, Benetton, that was a big, a Benetton bag back in the day. That was like a, a cool trinket to have. But yeah, the roots were different and they were unique. And um, I, I've always been a, you know, a supporter and fighter for them. And I knew and Philly was different when it came to hip hop. Um, and the roots were sort of like, if you think about it, the roots were the whole foods of hip hop at the time. They were pure. They were totally organic. And they were just, you know, it was a unique experience. And their fan base was a lot wider than a normal hip hop uh, group. And so um, initial, uh, you know, view on roots where like they were on South street, you know, trying to get some change on South street and they had a corner and they were, you know, making music on South street. They had a song called pass the popcorn that I love <clears throat> and I would play it on radioactive. And, um, I remember when they got the, when they signed their first uh, major deal with Geffen and, 
that whole process. And we did, you know, we did a couple of, I used to do this club called Fever. Um, it used to be the old cat club in Philly and I, and it didn't turn into a hip hop club called Fever. And I would do sort of my own night every Saturday night. And so like I booked, I mean, I booked Biggie, I booked um, the Fugees, um, EPMD, you name it. Like I was bringing them in, but I had booked the Roots in there. And um, I was worried because it was such a hardcore grimy club that that would they you know how would they do in there but they came in there and they just flipped the script that one of the things that they would always do was they would take current hip-hop beats and play them live and then the crowd was just like they were done when they would started you know when they when they would do shook ones beat like the crowd would go crazy and then of course black thought would just kill you with a verse so um i knew that they were special i knew that they were unique and i knew that they were going to be something more than the usual group because of their fan base and so um you know I, the rest is history like I, I went to go see them when I, I lived in Cleveland for a couple of years and I remember they did a show in Cleveland and I went to go see them there and just just wonder wondering and looking at this crowd of people in Cleveland just like oh man I remember these dudes was coming up in Philly and then of course now with the Tonight Show so um you know they're just great great people and Questlove is just um you know He's a treasure and, um, you know, I'm, I'm just proud of him, just knowing him when he was a kid to knowing where he is now and just seeing him grow. That was just an amazing run. Yeah, definitely. That Summer of Soul documentary, Quest Love Supreme. Mm -hmm. Look at the Funkmaster Flex freestyle video with Black Thought. You will not be disappointed. And Quest Love, I don't know if you're watching or listening, you got an open spot to come on this podcast. I'm telling you, I'm putting it in the air. I'm putting it in existence right now. Come on in, Quest Love. Now, to go to Radioactive, what were some of the shows that you were listening to that you could that you used to kind of have a build a template for Radioactive and then also the art of breaking a record when you could break a record and it was a big deal to break a record? Well, Radioactive was really just an extension of... Um, other big hip hop shows. So, you know, I, I listen to Street Beat and I listen to, you know, um, Rap Attack, Mr. Magic, Molly Maul. I listen to Red Alert and Chuck Chill Out. Um, and so there was no, um, there was no, no uh, outlet for that once Lady B left in Philadelphia. So I wanted to do my own thing. And I was the youngest person at the station at the time. And so I loved hip hop. I was the one that would bring records to the program director. He didn't know. He didn't really, he knew the R&B stuff, but he didn't know the hip hop stuff. I remember playing um, It Takes Two from Rod Bates. And I was like, this right here is going to be a problem. We need to jump on it immediately. He said, all right. And we did it. And of course, you know, the rest is history. But I would always find those, those big hip hop songs. And I remember when the station transitioned away from being that R&B station in the mid nineties into more of a hip hop station in the latter nineties, which was totally my, my vibe and, and my era. Um, and so that's what radioactive came out of that. You know, that was just the idea and I put it together. And at the time, the way hip hop worked in around the country, every label had a hip hop division or a college hip hop division, and they only got airplay late at night on radio stations. So you were a really important person to the labels. And so any artist that you would see, and I would watch the box at the time, you know, where people could buy, you know, rent or, you know, put money on the phone bill to see the videos that they want to see. You would see all kind of like videos there and then you would see videos on BET. And then I would book the artists to come to Philly and they would just come to Philly. And there was so many great success stories out of that era. I mean, I mean, I, I always talk about the Fugees because the Fugees, 
were came to Philly. They were signed to a label out of Philly, Roughhouse, um, and Chris Schwartz and Joe Nicolo um, were the um, guys that ran that label. And I remember just, you know, hey, they, we got to bring these guys by. We're working with these guys, the Fugees. And another friend of mine, Salam Remy, who is a, a, a world-renowned producer, um, he basically, when the Fugees first came out, they didn't do anything. They had um, they had nappy heads and they had vocab, but it didn't really do anything until Salam Remy remixed them. And when he put the remix on both of those songs, that put them on the map. And then they came with the score the following year, and then the, the rest was just history. Um, but, like, I mean, from Cypress Hill to, I, I mean, I could just go down. I mean, uh, what was the group, the hip hop group that uh, that Will I Am was in? Um, Black what was that group called? Yeah, Black Eyed Peas before they were anybody. I mean, Tone Loke. Like, I just trying to think of all these different people that became like big stars, but like early in their career, they would come through. Um, most Def was not Most Def. He was, um, he was, before he was Most Def, he was in this song called, uh, in this group called the UTD Underground Thermal Dwellers. And that they, they got this joint called Hardcore Nights in the City. And we just, we used to love it. And so, like, he would come down, and then um, then he became a solo artist, most definitely. I was like, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I remember never forget the night interview, and then I went to go open the door, and I was like, that's the dude from the Visa commercial with Yao Ming, and that's how we connected. We actually have the same birthday. And so so then then it went into the whole acting thing with, with most Def, right? He was like, he was literally um, uh, uh, Childish Gambino before. Poor Childish Gambino. I mean, he was acting and doing a whole a bunch of commercials, and then he was rapping at the same time. And so that's just another success story. And of course, Jay Z. You know, literally, Jay Z in '95. Uh, I met him in '90. I met him before that because he was an original flavor, and I and I liked his verse on "Can I Get Open," and I really wanted him to. I really wanted to meet him, and so I booked original flavor because I used to do every Greek picnic in Philly every summer. I would do a big concert. Um, built around my show uh, around Greek Picnic. And so this one year I had um, Original Flavor opening up, but it was Gravediggers, which was the RZA's group, because Wu-Tang is another artist, another group that, again, nobody knew who they were. I, I put them on, you know, 93 before, when they were white label, before they even were signed to Loud. Um, but uh, RZA, uh, after the first Wu-Tang album, RZA, got a bunch of other super producers together uh, and an artist, Fuquan from, from Sets of Sonic and Poetic and Prince Paul, who was a phenomenal producer who was responsible for De La Soul. And they came up with a horrorcore group called Gravediggers. And that album, Six Feet Deep, is one of the greatest hip hop albums ever produced. Go, go get it on your phone right now. I listen to it all the time. And I booked them for a show and that was a big deal because they had never performed together. And that was the first time that they had performed together. And so I had... Um, original Flavor, one of the groups that opened up for him, and Jay-Z was in the group. And then I had um, Rampage, the last Boy Scout, who was Busta Rhymes' protege, and Busta Rhymes was there. Um, and he wasn't even a solo artist yet. He was still in Leaders of the New School. But it's just like, you would have all these kind of moments in hip-hop. I mean, Redman, who was down with Eric Sermon, you know, Eric Sermon, who had left EPMD. Like, you would get all of these different people, and they would come to you, to do shows, but, um, you know, Jay-Z was, I, I, I interviewed him in 95 and, and my backstory podcast is actually based on that particular experience because I was listening to Combat Jack, God rest his soul, 
who had a song who had a podcast out that was about the late Chris Lighty. And when I listened to that, I was like, man, I need to do the podcast thing because I got all this content and I could really tell the stories. And so Jay-Z is probably the best example of an artist that I met organically. And he became such a big star. But in that period, I interviewed him all of those, all of those years I interviewed him. So I was able to share in three different podcasts, three different eras of Jay-Z. So the first one was, um, you know, the first year and a half or first two years. And then the second podcast I did was the Blueprint albums. And then the third was after the Blueprint album was called Jay-Z 10 years in when he left being an artist and became the president of Def Jam. So all throughout that time period, I, I interviewed him. So you can hear the beginnings and the makings of a businessman, a mogul um, along, along that way. And um, it was just fascinating to, you know, to watch him and to know where he is now and to see how big of a star he is. I mean, next to Will Smith, I mean, Will Smith and, and, and it's just interesting because I have a Will Smith connection because me and Will are the same age. We started at the same time when we both graduated high school, I had started radio and he was just releasing girls of the world and nothing but trouble. And he was, you know, supposed to go to college, but he didn't go to college. And we used to go to parties. They used to have these grand, grand big parties in, in Winfield and these big old uh, houses before they became stars. And we used to hang out. Um, but it's just wild when you see where they, they're, you know, who they've become and the, the essence of their being in entertainment, but also around the world. And you just remember some regular guys. I mean, I remember Damon Jay coming in twin Lexus GS coupes with big rims on them. And they had a bunch of uh, 12 inches in the trunk of their car. And um, that was my first interaction with Jay. And I said, man, I want you to come back and do a show for me. And he came back and did a show for me and he opened up for Dougie Fresh, right? So it's like, you know, I got many stories like that. And um, when I left Philly to go to New York and I came back to Philly, I asked him to do a concert for me um a welcome back to philly concert and he didn't say he was like sure what you need man and he did it so you know that was just like a good era and a fun time but again that relationship and that moment was all like started through radioactive we were able to just um you know make those connections so if you listen to my backstory podcast you get to hear all that stuff um like i share interviews with like Nas. i mean Nas was was literally i got Nas, you know almost two years before um illmatic and he was a frustrated artist trying to figure out, you know, when his album was going to come out. He had had live at the barbecue. He was like, I want to come out, but the, but this bullshit with the labels, you know, like um, Wu-Tang, I got a, a whole, I got two episodes on Wu-Tang and literally all of their success from their group album to solo success. So I kind of cover all of that. I just did drive just this year. I dropped Tribe Called Quest and I literally tell the story of Quest and just all of my interactions with them. And again, uh, Quest came out before I had Radioactive, and I was a super fan of Quest. So I was able to play those album cuts on the radio, which is another thing that inspired me to to do my own show. So, I mean, that's just a little bit of it. I mean, there's so many artists that, that go from there to today that I'm, I've been able to interview and really be able to tell stories. And through my podcast, I take you back to that era. So when you listen... You'll you you'll listen. You'll be in 1995 and 96 with Jay Z. You'll be in 1993 with Nas and Wu Tang. You know, I got Common on there, and Common was somebody I met. I met Common when he was a college student at FAMU, and he had just signed a major record label deal with uh, Relativity Records. And Relativity Records had Common, F- 
Fat Joe and eventually Bone Thugs and Harmony. Like all of these artists came out of that. So um, it was just, a, you know, that's to me, the 90s was the greatest era in hip hop. I call it the, the uh, renaissance for hip hop because it was so much explosive growth in the format, um, in the genre in that, ten, in that 10 year time period. And that time period is the reason why we have everything we have today is because of 1990 to 2000. That was just such a compacted window of amazing growth for hip hop. And I was kind of had a front row seat for all of it. Yeah, and while hip hop was booming big at that time, you also had this other movement coming out called Neo Soul. And a lot of the acts from that movement, such as Jill Scott, Bilal, Music, Lower Tree, Kendrick, the Family Spirit, all were performing in and around Philadelphia before it really took off. So what was that like for you seeing that whole movement? Well, Jill and I went to um, Temple together. So I've known Jill before fame. Um, and it was, um, you know, and I, I, I mean, you tie it into Quest Love, like the Black Lily, the, the, the event that they would have every Tuesday night in um, Philadelphia in this tiny club that was like as big as this room I'm in. But it would be a who's who would come when they would come to town, they would be there. So you would run into Prince in there. You run into Erica Badu because it was just a cool factor. And they made a lot of great music. I mean, Music Soul Child, you know, he grew up in the neighborhood that that um, we didn't grow up together because I'm a little bit older than him. But he, he lived in the neighborhood that I lived in. And we used to be, you know, bachelors doing our laundry at the laundromat on Saturday night before we would hit the clubs and whatnot. And just his success and all the stuff that he's been able to do um, as an artist. Um, but no, that was a great, I mean, uh, Flow of Tree, Marsha Ambrosius, you know, coming out of Flow of Tree. I mean, all of these people like, you know, me and Marsha used to go to the same restaurant. We always, until this day, when I see her, we talk about um, this restaurant that we just, this crepe restaurant that we would go to in Philadelphia because you would see people because Philadelphia is like a, is a big city. It's, it's in a top 10 market, but it's really like a small town. Everybody knows everybody, especially when you're black. You all, everybody, we all know each other. And if you're on the radio, you definitely have a connection with everybody. And so, no, that was just such a great era um an artist that came out of that and what was it like for you transitioning from the talent side to the programming executive side and your mindset going to new york to launch power oh that was just you know uh, you know i always tell people you want to figure out a way to you know how do you extend your career right and so you never want to be a one-trick pony now this is not for everybody i mean i i happen to have a certain skill set in the way that i approach my job that program directors liked like I was kind of um what you call low maintenance you didn't really you know Kobe was a professional he would just you leave him alone he would just do his thing and like he would make magic and he would you know motivate others around him and um a prominent program director um in one of the biggest radio stations in the country told pulled me aside and it was like at first I became like a music director you know assistant program director that was sort of what I was doing behind the scenes because my program director at the time said, you know, you really need to learn. I was complaining about the music. I was complaining about the way stuff was done. And she was probably a little annoyed. So she was like, well, you need to get into programming so you can understand it. And then I was like, oh, okay, oh, this is this is how the sausage is made. This is why these decisions are made. And then I already had a natural leadership, you know, uh, gene. So I was sort of, you know, wanted to lead and, and guide. And I was an assistant program director um in philly and then i went to new york to help launch power 
on five, and it just was not a good experience for me. I ended up getting fired after like three months. It was the first time I ever got fired in radio. And it was in that moment that a prominent program director pulled me aside and said, you know, you need to be a PD. It's time for you to do your own thing. And then that's when it clicked. Like, I need to be a program director. So when I make decisions and I, I can I can make decisions, implement them, and nobody would be in the way of me implementing the decisions because ultimately I'm the decision maker. And so that was the reason why I got into management. And then I was on the air at the same time. So I could all of a sudden do all the things that I wanted to do on the air without somebody calling me, telling me to stop talking or whatever. And and if it doesn't, if it didn't work, it didn't work, they would fire me. But of course it worked. And it was just, I had phenomenal success. Um, once I left, you know, got let go in New York and I came back to Philly to be a program director. And then I went to Ohio to be an operation manager, which led to me now in this role that I've been in now to being a vice president of the program and overseeing radio stations all over the country. But all of that stuff was really based out of um, the, the um, wanting to just control my own destiny. And, you know, when you get into management, you, you control your, your own destiny to a certain extent. But you got to be you'll be held accountable if you're not able to reach particular goals. And so like a couple of times in my career, I got fired because I was being held accountable. Um, but that but that was, you know, all of those moments were great for me because it opened up bigger doors of opportunity and it allowed me to stay in this business. A lot of the people that were starting when I got started are now all the big executives running all the companies. So it's like all the big people and all the companies, we all have a long history because we've come from the same era, right? So it's cool. Or even some people that are younger than me that have arisen to these big positions, I watched them very early in their career um, rise up just like they watched me. So it's actually pretty cool to have that connection in the business. And, um, you know, which that, that, that's why I jumped into podcasting because I was like, the next thing for me would be, you know, I want to I want to do more in the podcasting space. And so my podcast I thought there wasn't anything like what I was doing. And that's another thing. When you create an idea or you do something, you do something that nobody else is doing. And that's your lane, right? Mm -hmm. And most people don't do that. Most people are trying to copy somebody else's success. Well, let me do it. I can do what they did. No, create your own lane. And so, you know, the Backstory Podcast was one thing that I created that I was like, there's no living um, audio history of all this great hip hop that happened. And that's the background of why I started doing the podcast. And another extension of management was getting into podcasts. Mm -hmm. And uh, being in the broadcasting industry <laughs> off and on for 17 years, started out in college and seeing the changes in broadcasting over the years with podcasting and streaming. How does radio find its place in today's current landscape where today's generation of kids won't know the concept of sitting up by the radio, waiting 15, 20 minutes for a song where they can go to their phone, computer, or whatever device, and it's at their disposal. And how does radio say, okay, we know we're not going to be able to fully complete with streaming and podcasting, but we still have a <laughs> place in today's media landscape. Well, I mean, it's, it's uh, everything evolves. And so technology has drastically changed media. And, you know, radio, I, I know a lot of people say they don't listen to radio, but they actually still listen to radio. They may listen to it differently. The way that we have grown to listen to radio is like, OK, I used to have a radio in the house and I turn it on. That's how I listen to the radio or I listen to it in the car. Well, a lot of the listening still happens in the car, but also people listen digitally because all the radio stations are, are streaming, just like all these other things that you're listening to. And, and radio is a very good device for artists. 
um, you can't be a superstar today without radio. Radio is really the 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 the, uh, the vehicle that kind of takes you from, you know, you're a ten thousand uh, a show artist to a hundred thousand a show artist because that magnification that you know um, when you get to radio allows you to reach wider audiences. And again, people are listening on streaming um, devices, and radio has to do and reinvent itself and some of it is in the content that we do on the air like you know um music you can kind of get everywhere but you know specific content you know on a radio from a day-to-day perspective that's where the creativity comes in doing something interesting and unique uh on the air between the songs um and that's how you stay relevant in addition to podcasting and and radio was podcasting is just an extension of what we've been doing on radio forever right it's like podcasting for us will be recording an interview or something that we did on the radio and then you have to you would listen to it digitally right now podcasting allows it to be distributed through all these different platforms and it's a great way to repurpose content or parts of content mm, i agree because with my podcast i took some of my old interviews from college from my radio show the time machine we packaged it and put it as an archive in addition to the current interviews now i'm curious to know i'm a radio aficionado a junkie how long did it take for you to digitize all the content for Backstory? Well, I still have it. I still have like a bunch of boxes of tapes, but I was out of work in 2008. And so it probably took me about eight months of just taking it and sitting there, listening to it, documenting it. And there's still so many files that I have to go through to, of, of content that I, um, and then sometimes because of my podcast, I come across people that listen to the show that used to record the show and they started sending me tapes. And so that, so I get stuff that way. I'm still missing some big interviews that I did that I just don't have copies of, or maybe I do, I just haven't gotten to it yet. So um, yeah, it took all that time, but it was just a, it was weird because I did it in 2008 and then I sat on that content for 10 years. So like, I didn't know I was going to be doing a podcast. I didn't even know what podcasting was or what it was going to become. And then all of a sudden it hit me. I got all this great content. Let me turn it into a podcast. It's just amazing how God works in your life and how you do things sometimes and you don't have a you don't have an explanation for it. But then at some point down the line, I go, aha, there was a reason for all this. And so um, that was sort of uh, the, the, the backstory of the backstory podcast. And it was literally I was out of work. My wife was like, you got all these damn cassette tapes down here. What are you going to do? I'm going to throw them out. And I said and I started listening. And the first um, the first thing I heard was a not it was Nas and he was complaining about you know being an artist you know and not album not my album's not coming out then it was like Wu-Tang the first interview where they almost cost me my job and it was like 20 of them in a van they came through the station and they just trashed the whole station but I kept I was calling them Clang and not Clan and the Jizza was trying to uh correct me I'm in an interview and I'm listening to all this stuff and I was like, wow, this is really gold or Queen Latifah introducing Naughty by Nature or Fat Joe introducing Big Pun or Fat Joe who the Fat Joe episode of the Backstory podcast is one of the best episodes that I've ever done because Fat Joe is someone who has been a friend from the beginning. So I've known Fat Joe since 1993 and basically interviewed him his entire career. So when I did that podcast, he called me in tears. He was like, this was the best representation of my career I have ever heard. Like you, you nailed all of the different things about me and about my career in one podcast and then 
shared audio from me during these time periods. And with Joe was always a great storyteller. So I would just hit record even when we weren't um, on the air. And I had all, all of that content. So was able to share that in a, in a podcast. And um, yeah, that was just a, I mean, that was just, it's awesome to have that stuff. And, I, and at some point, because I've been so busy the last seven years, I will get back to getting into this um, tapes and, and trying my best to, uh, you know, see what else I can pull out. You know, because there's a bunch of episodes that I haven't done yet that I need, I need to do Outcast. I haven't done Outcast. I got Outcast, you know, before anybody knew who they were. There's a lot of artists like that, you know, like artists that were not East Coast artists that came from other places and they would come to Philly. In fact, what Outcast, which is interesting about that, Big Boy was exciting, excited to meet me when Outcast first came out. You know why? Because he was watching Rap City and Rap City used to do this thing where they would go to a different city every week and go to the radio station, who the radio people were, and they would put you on the thing. So Big Boy took notes and he was like, oh, when we get to Philly, we got to go see Colby Cole. And so he was so excited to meet me. Like, And I thought that was so strange, but it was Rap City and your MTV raps that really introduced hip hop to most of America. Whereas when you lived on the East Coast, you just knew the hip hop because it was we was a part of our culture. Like we embraced it first. But the rest of the country would see it through that little window. And then that was just a great moment. And I still haven't shared that podcast or even told that story. I've never told that story before, but it'll be in the outcast episode when I do it. Yeah, definitely can't wait for that. I'll follow your podcast. It's one of the podcasts that I listen to to get better at my craft. And you're sitting on history. And I feel that it's important to document the history so that generations after can know where it started, where it's going, and just really have a true sense of it didn't just start with you. There were people that paved the way for you to get to where you are. And that's what you have. And I'm glad that you're doing a service with your podcast. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And and before we wrap, I want to talk about briefly for you, what was it like the first time you heard the youngsters and Eve? Um, the youngsters were, it was interesting. I knew them when they were kids because their uncle, um, well, one of the youngsters' father was um, uh LG, the teacher, who was sort of like the mastermind person behind the whole Hilltop Hustler thing. So Karan was like a little kid when the Hilltop Hustler Steady B thing happened. And then his dad got him a deal when they were teens. And the youngsters were, I mean, the youngsters got like DJ Premier. They got like the best producers. And, you know, they were they were set up perfectly in that situation because uh, LG learned a lot from the Steady B Cool C days. And he was able to kind of flip that um, with his kids. And so, and Eve was just, um, I just remember Eve, um, you know, just the whole Rough Rider thing out of DMX. I, I only heard of her because of DMX. I didn't really know her coming up. I mean, her DJ was somebody that worked with the station, but I didn't know her, know her until like I started hearing her. And then we heard what you want. And then, then the rest is just history. Like we, we, we you know, we, embraced her and you know again she's another one that has moved on to some bigger amazing things in the entertainment industry mm, and bonus question best cheesesteak spot in philly um my spot is abner's at 39th and chestnut i go there every time i come to town i go get a cheesesteak from that spot they make it right there funny you they use the i don't i don't need cheese uh the 
beef steak. I'll eat like a chicken cheese steak, but they they're the best from as far as I'm concerned. And then you gotta go um get a slice of Lorenzo's on South Street, and then you just got like a whole you know Philly uh, uh grub fest there. For sure, be, but be sure to know what you want because if you like a Sunday drive, like uh, let me get a uh, you may get a reverse. Hello, how you doing? Because you're taking too long with your order. Yep, for sure. Yep, and be sure you know that a certain time of the day, you might want to be inside because it gets rough outside. But before we go, shout outs you want to give, plug your social media, and where can folks listen to the podcast? Yeah, I mean, a backstory with Colby Cole is available wherever you get your podcast. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Colby Cole. On Instagram, official Colby Cole. And um, I'm just, just appreciative of everybody that's supported me over the years and allowed me to kind of uh, let hip hop kind of, you know, allow me to feed my family and, and enjoy what I do. Um, listening to music that just kind of like, you know, molded me as a kid. So I'm just appreciative to you know, the, all the years that I've had and, and the blessings of just being able to, to do music and um, do radio and meet a lot of cool, interesting people and be able to then share those stories back through my podcast. So um, I got a lot more stuff to do um, and I'm excited about the future. And uh, again, I appreciate you with this opportunity here to be on your show. No problem. You can follow the podcast wherever you stream. You can follow Beyond the Album Cover wherever you stream. Also on my YouTube channel of the same name and Facebook.com Beyond the Album Cover where you can get updated with the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big round of applause and thank you for Kobe Cope for coming on to Beyond the Album Cover with Jarrell Mason, yours truly. Kobe Cope, thank you so very much for coming on, sir. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Yes, sir.